Welcome back to Quality Matters. I'm Darcy again. And I'm Kyle. Today we have a guest with us. We have Adam Smith with Millennium Plastics. He is the president over there. Tell us what you do at Millennium Plastics. Yeah, hi. Thanks, guys. Uh, glad to be part of the uh, podcast. Um, so Millennium Plastics, were in the injection molding industry, primarily targeting automotive, um, although you know, going outside into industrial, um, some medical and things like that are always options as well. Just my experiences in my career has been with the automotive industry. So that's, that's where we focus. We, we focus on tight tolerance, hard, difficult to mold, uh, engineering grade plastics. And that's kind of our niche, high volume, tight tolerance molding. In today's global economy, quality matters. Benjamin Franklin once quipped, the bitterness of poor quality remains long after the sweetness of low price is forgotten. Quality Matters is here to talk about all things quality. So whether you're looking to improve your business, getting ready for an audit, or dealing with failed inspections, tune in, check us out, then get back to doing work that matters. Oh, that's me. Okay, so I'm going to have to pause. My role in the podcast is to ask questions about things I don't understand so that anybody listening understands what's being talked about. <laughs> what sure. is injection molding? Uh, injection molding, if you pick up just about any plastic part on your desk um, in your household, it's, it's likely that it's injection molding. So what injection molding is, is you're taking plastic that usually comes in the form of pellets about the half the size of like a, a pea and mm -hmm. it goes through a heating process uh, which is called the barrel and the, and the screw or some of the injection molding components and then it takes that molten plastic and injection into a mold that forms it into the parts that you know you see with everyday use I mean think about your controllers for your TVs and, uh, and those components are usually injection molding um but yeah, so that's that's really it. If if you think a lot a lot of your everyday use items and a lot of the plastic components that you see within inside cars, it's it's usually injection molded. Okay. So just like what it sounds. Yes, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yep. And then you mentioned a tight tolerance, which I'm sure Kyle is gonna want to investigate a little more. Yeah, something I, I, I this is a world that I've not had a whole lot of experience with uh, myself and you know, I, I'm more used to coming from a, a welding and fabrication type world. So it's it's pretty obvious. You, you can put a dial caliper on it. You can put a micrometer on it. You know, you can check the tolerances on these things and, and, and you know, make sure you're still working. How does that work with injection molding? Do the molds, you have to worry about the molds deforming and things of that nature? Yeah, plastics are, it's a little bit of a different animal, especially when you're considering and talking about tight tolerance stuff, because the actual process of molding becomes really, really important. Um you know, if you're making if you're making parts for everyday use, like your your covers for your you know remote controls and things like that, that's not going to generally speaking be tight tolerance. There's fit, form, and function that needs to take place for those components to work and, and assemble. But when I'm talking tight tolerance, I'm talking about tolerances that end up being you know plus or minus point zero three millimeters. I mean, we're talking really, right. really tight. We're, you know, thousands of inch if you're, if you're dealing with right. English or tens of thousands. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's an interesting thing with the automotive world too. Most of the automotive world is it deals with metric instead of English, English units. Yeah. Um, 
but the mold you're talking about the steel that becomes very important you need to hit dirt certain shrink rates um so it, it kind of all starts with the mold if you don't have a mold that's capable from cavity to cavity because an in injection molding uh every time the mold opens and shuts and especially in in high tolerance and high volume you're not only making one part every time that happens you're making 16 32 64 128 mm -hmm. you know you're making a lot of parts every time that mold opens and shuts and the goal is that every single one of those parts are exactly the same. So right. if you if you can't make the steel measure exactly the same, you know, if you're not dealing with a tool shop that's capable of reaching those tight tolerances on the steel itself, your plastic parts are never going to be the same. So it kind of all it all starts there. So you'll have to have special alloys for the, like, this is just fascinating to me. It's like you have a special alloys for the molds or, I mean, I assume just standard carbon steel is not going to work well for you here. Yeah. I can't just use P20 steel for, uh, for, for high volume. You're using S7 or H13 steels. Uh, you can get into alloys and you can get into really, some really neat things with different ally, uh, alloys, depending on what your uh, goal is to achieve. Um, but really comes down to application specific, the type of plastic material you're using. If it's really an abrasive material, you start getting into coating the tool steel. Um, mm. For for real abrasive materials that are glass filled and that runs high volume, a lot of times we will, we will double coat it with a different color coating. So you never get back down to virgin steel before you realize that, mm. hey, this coating's wearing off. We need to recoat so where we can protect the virgin steel so we don't have, you know, have to weld and in the or replace cavities and cores if it's beyond repair interesting interesting but that's that's so, the world for for high volume it, it gets into you know a lot of a lot of people can 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 buy an injection molding machine and get a tool built just about anywhere there's there's lots of tool shops around all over the world but without a quality tool up front and a really robust maintenance plan uh the quality of that product can deteriorate over time very and very quickly Interesting. Well, you, these coatings, how um, how much does that affect the the final tolerance of the part that you're working with? Depending on it, depends on the coating. A lot of coatings, especially for ones that are for abrasive resistance, uh, can go mm -hmm. on really, really thin to where it's almost minuscule. You won't you won't see it at all. There's other there coatings and platings you can use that add on a certain degree of thickness, and it's not an exact science. Um, but it all has to do with, you know, how long the uh, the steel itself is, you know, in, in the process of being plated, which is usually a dip process into, you know, a bath of that material for, for a certain amount of time that um, will add to it. So it's, uh, it varies on the coating, I guess, really is the short answer. Um, but <laughs> the, uh, the more in-depth answer, I suppose, is some of that stuff uh, you can use coatings and platings and things of that nature to adjust the tolerances if you, if you need to as well. Huh. Interesting. The, uh, the experience I've got with coatings is more of um, uh, these uh, plasma, you know, art gases, you know, spraying that these rather thick ceramic metallic coatings. So it's a little bit of a different, uh, different world there from, from what I've, I've come from. Um, so, you know, you've got to maintain all these tight tolerances. What, what are the applications of some of these parts? What are they being used for? Why is it so so vital for it to, um, I guess, have, have some of these different requirements? I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
well, for auto industry, especially when you're talking about tight tolerance, it usually comes in under the hood components or safety components. Uh, seat belts is a big one. So all the gear components in your seatbelt, you'd think most of those parts are metal when in actuality it's mostly plastic. Really? Um, there's key components that are metal within that, that help, you know, help the seatbelt lock up and, and things of that nature. But all the gears inside of the seatbelt that makes it retract and, and lock up, you know, most of those components are actually plastic. Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, you know, I, I know with uh, metals, there's, you know, all sorts of different properties you can get out of the metal from, from uh, you know, the, the hardness, the tensile strength, bend strength, all of that. So I'm, I'm assuming the same is true of uh, plastics there then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, and, and just like you have different alloys of, of metal, you have different compounds of, uh, a, a, you know, many different resins. It's too many to count you can go on like ul prospector and matt webb and, and look up just plastics and you'll get you'll see a list of everyone who's got their own different blends of polypropylene to acetals and things of that nature and they all do different things um, just depends on depends on your application and the properties that you need you know what mechanical properties you do need helps drive towards what resin you use what uh what type uh you know, if you're going to produce some new product, like what type of design process do you have to, to make all these decisions and determinations? There's, there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah, that's, that's something that we try to stay away from. Uh, to tell you the <laughs> truth, we, we are, you know, with, the, with Millennium Plastics and we're in, we're a, we're a tier two molder. Um, so to, to put that in a little bit more layman's terms for the audience, the OEMs like Ford and GM and Chrysler and Toyota and, and all the major car companies are considered the OEM, right? Um, mm-hmm. Then you have tier tier one suppliers, which will, in most cases, supply large chunks of the, you know, large assemblies that go into the vehicle. And then you get down to tier two suppliers, which is what Millennium Plastics is, where we're molding a lot of singular components or very small assemblies that go to tier one suppliers. And then they assemble those components to send on to um, the OEMs. Tier one suppliers are generally speaking design responsible. And then they outsource the injection molded components to tier two suppliers and say, Hey, this is our blueprint. These are the tolerances we need you to hit. You guys are the injection molding experts. We want you guys to make these parts for us. Um, So we're, we're given a design, we're given limited input to, Hey, uh, we'd be able to build a tool much cheaper or make a part that's way more robust if you can implement these design changes for us. Hmm. Or if you use this material instead of that material, it's a little bit easier and more robust and things of that nature. So we try to limit our design responsibility to specific to injection molding from that perspective, just because it, uh, that's, you know, that's where we're the experts and we're not the experts in designing and, and functioning vehicles. No, it makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Do you know where all your items go? Like which cars they go on? Uh, sometimes we don't get that information. We we uh, we can get some of that, and it's it's one of the, the tough things about the auto industry is, and especially when you're talking about ISO certifications like ISO nine thousand and one, where you're responsible for your quality and understanding what your parts do. And you're supposed to get design FEMAs from the OEMs, but you never get design FEMAs. So 
<laughs> you can ask uh you can ask a thousand a thousand times and a thousand questions about it and sometimes you get all the answers and sometimes you don't so it's a little <laughs> it's a little bit of a crapshoot to get the information of what vehicle and what platform they actually go in <laughs> that's just it's unfortunately the name of the game well, I mean, if, if you've got a very clear tiered structure, then, you know, the, the responsibility falls to, to one or the other. And, you know, you're, you're just responsible for the requirements you're given there. You mentioned that you might be doing other work for uh, folks outside of the automotive industry. Uh, you, you mentioned medical. Tell me a little bit about that. That's something that's a bit of interest to us these days as well. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a different world. There's a lot more. Uh, I, I guess I shouldn't really say there's a lot more requirements. It's, it's a lot of very similar requirements, just in a different, a different fashion, right? Because it's a different certification mm-hmm. for auto versus medical. Um, medical is really, really difficult to get into and to achieve, uh, you know, high volume status for some of that stuff. It's a little bit tougher game. So I have some colleagues that are in the medical business specifically, and they have clean rooms. They do, you know, the whole nine yards there and Wow. It's not really something we actively go after. Um, it's something that we keep in mind that like, Hey, if there's this opportunity, that's really high volume and it's uh, it's not a full blown clean room and it's, right. you know, there's certain stages of clean rooms. If it's not a full blown clean room, it's really high volume and it makes sense for what we do. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll entertain it. But outside of that, we, our main focus really is in automotive and industrial and non-clean room initiative type components. No, no, that, that's neat. I think this is all the more interesting because, you know, the we're in Houston, so I think uh, the majority of the guests we've had have been uh, talking about uh, things related to the oil and gas mm-hmm. world. So this is definitely a, a little bit of a different world than what probably a lot of our listeners are actually accustomed to listening to on here. So with that, I'm going to ask, what is a clean room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so medical medical molding, um, there's various stages, and you'll have to forgive me, I'm not an expert in it. Um but generally mm-hmm. speaking, a clean room, if you get into real high level clean rooms, it's you're wearing a full gown, you're wearing hair nets, you're wearing uh, shoes that are specific only to that clean room. And and a lot of times, uh, depending on the the state of the clean room, you'll have a a gowning room, so to speak, that has filtered air and it's it's regulated temperature and humidity in there. The clothes that you wear into the clean room are only in this gowning room that never leave the gowning room at that point. And it's, it's all about decreasing any sort of contamination or particulates that could be in the air um, from the outside, getting to the inside into the molding process. Um, parts that, so you'll you know, have there's to do you... that. The... I'm sorry. You'll oh, have to do that. For... You'll have to do that for the molding process. Yeah. So the molding itself will, will be, wow. will take place in a clean room, which. Uh... Wow. <laughs> Which, uh, which essentially, like I said, you're, you're, you're in a full gown, you're, you're wearing, you're exchanging your shoes in this gowning room to be shoes that never leave the, uh, the clean room, so to speak. You're walking on these mat pads that are tacky and sticky to collect any kind of particulates or debris off of your shoes before you walk in. You generally have to sanitize and wash your hands before you enter the clean room. Um, before you can, you know, before you can actually get to work in there, if that's where you know, if it requires a, a person in the room to actually be, be present and start up a press or whatever, but that's a, that's high level. And I'm, I'm sure they even go higher level than that. And I'm, I'm <laughs> probably oversimplifying really what it actually is still. So, 
Well, you can only get so detailed in 20 minutes. Well, and, I, and I can understand <laughs> right. why you guys don't want to get too involved in that. That's a lot to go through. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's very high regulated. So there's testing that has to take place on a regular basis to ensure like the air filtration is correct and the temperature is correct and all that good stuff. And um, if God forbid something happens or you have a maintenance failure and you're not controlling the temperature, humidity or the air filtration in some form or fashion, there's a lot of extra steps involved to being, you know, recertify that the clean room's intact, I guess, so to speak. It's, it's a, it's a different world. It's not a, a world or a sandbox that I really want to play in for Millennium Classic. <laughs> <laughs> so for folks that aren't familiar with uh, anything in the automotive industry, we've talked about, you know, ISO 9001, but what are other certifications that you guys have to maintain or that are common to the industry? That's the big one. Um, is ISO 9001 essentially to be in the automotive industry and supply to a tier one, you have to have ISO 9001. Otherwise you'll never get any business. Um, the second stage of that is IETF 16949, which is supplemental to ISO 9001. Um, essentially IETF 16949, all the years ago, it used to be called TS 16949. Right. And all the automotive you know, the big wigs in the automotive got together and, and said, ISO 9001 is great, but we need to take it to the, the next level, so to speak. And they added this yep. TS16949. That recently morphed into IETF16949, which has, essentially takes the ISO 9001 and puts it on steroids and adds a bunch of other <laughs> uh, requirements for, for molders to meet. That's Good news the, for uh, yeah, that's go the ahead. exact same grab the uh, API standards for the oil and gas world is you can take, you know, the API Q1 and Q2 specs and that, that's it. It's there 9,001 on steroids. And for years, yeah. they actually took the uh, exact language of the 9,001 standard and then just added a, a few more thou shalls to, uh, to each clause. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's pretty much what the IETF 16949 is. It just takes, it takes everything that's in ISO and then adds uh, a lot more requirements. Um, and it's really geared heavily towards rec recording and reporting uh, than anything else, just to make sure everyone's keeping track and has has good record keeping of everything. But it, it, I mean, that's really just what it is. It's it's the ISO nine thousand one steroids. But those are the really the main two. If you don't have at least ISO nine thousand one, you're not going to get business as a tier two supplier. And to do work with an OEM, you have to be IETF one six nine four nine certified in most cases. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Now, yeah. the, uh, you talk about uh, records with the number of parts you all are producing. I can only imagine the number of inspections that you conduct and not conformances to record are just sometimes astronomical. Tell me a little bit about what that uh, inspection and record keeping process looks like. Well, so that's where uh, Millennium Plastics kind of shines compared to most molders. I think you would you could say where we're not really inspecting a heck of a lot. Um, hmm. We're producing millions of parts and we're, we're checking, uh, you know, a few, a few parts per, per shift. So a few times a day we're, we're checking parts and that's it. Um, the reason we're able to do that is all the controls we have in place in the actual molding process itself. So what's, what's unique about injection molding as opposed to maybe some other industries where you're, you're forming product is, um, I can control the injection molding process very finely using um, technology that's available to us and in the, within the molding machine and auxiliary equipment that I can ensure 
part dimensions and part integrity by machine tolerances. So I can, I can ensure that the same amount of plastic is going to that mold every time. I can ensure that it's going at the same speed every time at the same temperature. And if it doesn't, the machines will automatically reject those parts. And I can, I can correlate that using capability studies on the machine, the equipment and the parts to prove to customers that, Hey, if I just check this one dimension every eight hours and the machine stays within these tolerances, all those parts are exactly the same. And, and that's something that we do early on in the process and process development to uh, show proof to our customers that we don't need to check a part every hour because these machine parameters, once you see they go out, that's when you start to see dimension and tolerance issues. Very, very smart. I, I got to tell you, I've seen, well, I've uh, worked with one other organization that does uh, injection molding before for plastics. And, you know, I think they had a team of 25 inspectors that uh, saw oh, they wow. did all day, every day is uh, uh, just nonstop inspecting and, and checking. I think they'd spend three, four hours a day just going through paperwork. So it's, yeah, uh, it's fascinating. It's actually one of the things that we have to struggle with a little bit because IETF and, and OEMs are so big on having that data to show that you're within print, like actual part data when the machine data can tell you whether or not you're going to be to, you know, to print on a part or not. Um, a lot of times it's just, it's a struggle for us to convince our clients that we can, you know, we can prove that with the machine capabilities that we have, that we're, we're able to provide a part that's to print and not have to provide you, you know, 100 checks per day where we can, we can do the same thing with only five <laughs> checks per day. It's, it's a struggle. I bet. Mm-hmm. I bet. But uh, it's just really, really amazing that you're able to do that. That's uh, something I think a, a lot of folks could uh, seem to learn from. It's, uh, maybe this will be the, the last point here, because we're, we're going a little over time, but um, what's that process look like when you set it up? So when you set up a new machine, you set up this new process, how do you go about making sure that um, you, you know those requirements and you can be so confident? Boy, you, you could probably do a whole podcast just on that question alone. <laughs> um, maybe maybe that's what we'll do then. We'll we'll record another uh, another episode to air here at a later time, and we'll uh, we'll discuss those uh, those details. Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, simply put, it's there's there's specific parameters on an injection molding process that you monitor and check. And there's a certain process that we go involved that I won't divulge too much information because it's a little bit of our secret sauce on how we can do that. Um, Yeah. But uh, really comes down to doing a lot of capability studies on your machine and equipment and monitoring the right process parameters um, to be able to prove that stuff out. Well, then we will definitely have you back on here soon. And so for our listeners, be uh, keeping an eye out for for that next episode, because I think that's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah, I'd be happy to. That'd be great. Well, hey, I appreciate you taking the, the time this morning. And this is something that's a little different from what uh, we usually do, but uh, just really fascinating information. We talk all the time about how, you know, quality is really quality uh, across these industries. And I think you made the point with the medical devices. It's, it's uh, you know, it's the same, same idea. It's just a little different angle to go from mm-hmm. it. And we're you're seeing the same thing with automotive versus the oil and gas world. So it's uh, really fascinating. Yeah. All right. Thank you for your time, Adam. Yeah. Thanks. So happy to be here. Hey, 
Hey guys, this is Darcy with Quality Matters. We really appreciate you listening. And if you enjoy it, we invite you to subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you listen to your podcast. Subscribe, comment, leave us a review. We're happy to hear from you.